0: Our understanding of what cure might be is that either the disease is, is under total control for an indefinite amount of time, or that it is gone completely.
1: The important thing is to stay alive so that we can then um, utilize our advancing knowledge to help the individual patient.
2: I do see glimmers of hope in what we do. And while certainly we've not had anyone that's had the remarkable success, we've had little glimmers that have told us that we are going in the right direction and we just need to study it more. And so really, we don't know if cure is achievable in the majority of patients ever diagnosed with breast cancer. And I don't mean this to be a scary statement, because we don't have cures for diabetes, thyroid disease, HIV, but people can live good quality lives while living with these diseases.
3: Do I believe that metastatic breast cancer can be cured? I believe that one day, possibly, some of the subtypes of breast cancer will be able to be cured. But I do believe that some of these subtypes can reach the possibility of really transforming itself in chronic disease. I'm sure that breast cancer can be cured is because I've seen in my lifetime incurable cancers get cured.
4: Welcome to season 3 of the RMBC Live podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, so glad you're here. In today's episode, the podcast team has embarked upon something quite ambitious. Led by my fellow senior producer and co-host, Victoria Goldberg, this team has traveled virtually to speak with the leading oncologists and researchers in the U.S. today, specifically on the topic of where we are in terms of a cure for metastatic breast cancer. This topic is complicated and could not be done in one neat single episode. Nope. This incredible team has created a very important series of episodes that will share some of the most exciting new developments in MBC research and get real insights from the people closest to this work. But first, I want to add a personal note to this series. Our podcast team represents almost every permutation and combination of subtypes, treatment trajectories, treatment successes and treatment failures. We have some unicorns among us and we have people who have just started to grapple life with this disease. I myself am someone with immense gratitude for the treatments and research that has allowed me to live for four years relatively side effect free. I've lived each of those days with as much hope and joy and purpose as I could muster I'm lucky and I know it but I'm also someone who has not had any consistent stability in my disease and I'm now on my sixth line of treatment heading to my seventh very soon. I'm no longer eligible for clinical trials suitable for my cancer because I have too many prior treatment lines and no mutations that are currently being researched. I'm hopeful always but I'm also realistic. And so I felt it was important to share my reality, this reality, since it's similar and also shared with some in our community. We hope you hear that balance in these episodes with love and with hope and with a very healthy dose of science.
3: One of the first questions Every newly diagnosed cancer patient asks, will I die? But the first question out of the mouth of a newly diagnosed metastatic patient is inevitably, how long do I have? Breast cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death in women. Only lung cancer kills more women each year. It is estimated that over 44,000 men and women will die from breast cancer this year. Simply put, 116 of our MBC brothers and sisters will die today and tomorrow and the day after. These numbers agree and they have not changed dramatically in the last 20 years. They are a testament to the cleverness of the disease and its ever growing list of known variations and mutations. And yet, there are important exceptions, instances where long term disease free survival occurs. We all know some of these people. We call them unicorns. Every busy cancer clinic has patients who have had metastatic breast cancer for 20, 25 years. Cure is not a word thrown around lightly by oncologists. But now the top scientists in the cancer field are willing to band it about aloud, publicly, and often. The Stanford University professor, George Sledge, published a paper in the Journal of Oncology. In it, Dr. Sledge suggested that the existing paradigm around metastatic breast cancer, that it is incurable, should be updated in the face of new science developed in the past decade or so, pointing to the fact that 1 to 2% of metastatic breast cancer patients cured of their disease, or survived for many years, he wrote, if some patients are cured, might not we cure more. He's not alone in this way of thinking. In his keynote address at the 2020 Dana-Farber Embrace Conference, Dr. Eric Weiner opined, our treatments for HER2-positive breast cancer have become so much better that the question that's arising. Are some patients curable? In particular, Patients who are de novo, may those patients have the ability to be cured of their cancer? Can we develop curative approaches? If we do, what we still need to do? So, our NBC Live's crack team of investigators is taking these and many other questions on the virtual road in the series that we call The Road to a Cure. For the next two months, we will explore these and other topics with the leading clinicians and researchers in the field of breast cancer. In this episode, we sit down with a group of the Our NBC Life co-hosts and the friends of the podcast who are living with NBC to discuss what it means to live with an incurable disease and consider a possibility of cure. What is a cure? What is a chronic disease? In the next hour, we will tackle these and many other questions. But first, the introductions.
1: Hi, my name is Kay. I'm from New York. I was originally diagnosed in 2011 with stage 1 ER positive, HER2 negative, IDC. In 2015, I had a recurrence along with a lesion on my spine. And two years later, I had progression. i to say that my current treatment regimen is working and it's kept me stable now for over four years.
5: My name is Shantae Drakeford. I live right outside of Washington, D.C. in the Upper Marlboro, Maryland area. I was diagnosed de novo in 2015 at the age of 31. I've been on my first-line treatment For six years now, I've met to my lungs, my spine, my hip and rib. I'm triple positive, estrogen, progesterone positive, and HER2 positive.
0: I am Paula. Like Shantae, I'm triple positive. I was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer in 2013 and metastatic in 2017. I was not de novo, but I am treatment naive for the two treatments that I've been on, which I think has been helpful. And I've been on my first-line treatment for four and a half years, Perceptin and Femora, and thankful to be doing well so far.
2: My name's Ellen Lansberg. I live in New York, and I was diagnosed with stage one breast cancer in 1995 at the age of 43. I was ER, PR, uh, receptor positive, uh, her 2 negative. 22 years after my initial diagnosis, I was diagnosed with metastatic disease. So that was in 2017. I had met to my spine, treated with heavy dose radiation to the lesions, and I've been on eye brands and an aromatase inhibitor since then doing well.
6: My name is Natalia. I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I was originally diagnosed with cancer in 2000 in. 17, and had progression in May of 2019. Subtypes are estrogen positive, and I'm on my third line of treatment now on Flasodex
3: and Linparza. My name is Victoria Goldberg. I have been living with my metastatic diagnosis for almost eight years. I was diagnosed in January of 2014 with the METs to my liver, I had had an earlier diagnosis in 2004. I am triple positive and still on my first line of treatment, and I'm doing well. We thought that it would be helpful to kick it off with a little uh, introductory panel among us, people who are living with this disease, just to explain why we're doing this. What's the point of all of this? a fairly recent retrospective study of MD Anderson where they looked at de novo, no evidence of disease, HER2-positive women. They found that this group might actually be cured. In fact, I'll read to you what the article summed up. So it says, we hypothesize that some patients with newly diagnosed Oligometastatic stage four HER2 positive cancer with no prior HER2 targeted therapy who received combined modality HER2 targeted therapies and achieved NAD status may experience long term remission and perhaps even cure. How would you define a cure? What would you accept as a cure? I
0: can jump in just to start us off. I consider cure as no treatment and a natural lifetime and you die of something else. That to me is cure. That's my personal definition of cure. That said, I would gladly settle for a chronic disease management where I stay on treatment for the rest of my life, provided that those treatments are manageable and that the side effects are livable. Those would be my tears of hope. And then I'm I'm gonna step beyond that. And my ultimate hope is primary prevention so that my nieces don't have to get breast cancer. I think that's far in the future, um, but that kind of primary prevention is my ultimate hope. I would settle for secondary prevention to not metastasize. And I would be thrilled if we could make metastatic breast cancer a uh, chronic disease. So those are my three levels of hopes when it
3: comes to cure.
2: I think you covered all the bases there, Paula.
3: So let's talk about a chronic disease. Paula described it very well. She said she would take a chronic disease if that would guarantee a good quality of life. I've been living with this metastatic disease for eight years now. And uh, most people would say, oh my God, she's so incredibly lucky because her treatments are bearable, but it takes its toll. Even for somebody with my fairly easy treatment, it gets hard. So am I willing to live my lifespan with feeling tired all the time and not feeling really myself anymore?
1: That's a very difficult one. We've had discussions many times. The therapy that I'm on is very toxic. I need breaks frequently, but I think also perspective, a person's quality of life is different for every single one of us and our expectations of what we want our life to look like is different. It's different at your life stages as well, depending upon what your activities need to be, what you want it to be. We're all at different stages. We have people 20, 30, 40, 50, going on up and we all have different family obligations and that comes into play with your quality of life that gets down to what paula was saying it's going to be chronic then i sure do hope that the treatments get a little better and they're less harsh and that we can live our natural lifespan with a really great
6: quality of life that would be my hope i I think having it categorized as a chronic disease is a win I have a chronic illness. I have an autoimmune disorder called myasthenia gravis and I was diagnosed at a really young age. There is comfort in a diagnosis knowing that you can live with something for a long time in comparison with a diagnosis that will end your life sometime. The quality of life would be better knowing that each scan Isn't so anxiety ridden, or each pain, you're not worried that it's a a new bone mat or that it's moved to another part of your organ, or each headache that you have, you're worried that it's more brain metastases. That isn't a great, fun quality of life in itself, even though it's all keeping me alive. It also is very stressing. I'm on my third line of treatment. Each of the reoccurrences is another diagnosis. They all felt like I was going to die the next day, and it it made me feel like I had a shorter time to live. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. It's just another kick to the gut saying that this isn't working and that cancer is winning. There are people that we've known that have exhausted those options, and it, it keeps it pretty real for the rest of us that being on your third step isn't necessarily being on your sixth step, but you're getting closer. These side effects are really rough. I'm not saying that it comes easy and it does change physically the person you are, but I think that weight on when am I going to die or when is something going to progress sometimes can, feels heavier than the side effects themselves.
5: Oh yes, I agree with that because if you are diagnosed with diabetes, we know that's not curable, but it's treatable and it's, and, you know, lifelong. So I get what you're saying with the chronic versus the ultimately probably die from type of situation. And also I think a happy meeting would be if we could just have something that will make us feel like our pre-cancer body just for a year. Give me a year break. I'm good. And then maybe I could just go back to it or something like I wish it was some sort of magic pill that you only could use it like two times. And that would be amazing. That's like a a happy medium to a cure. I think all of us wish that just to be symptom free for one day.
3: I want you to weigh in on, on is cure
5: possible. And if it is, do you think it's time to talk about it? That word is very triggering, cure. When you hear cure, you think of never again. And we know in a metastatic community, that's just not the case because it's going to progress. It's going to be a point where we exhaust all our treatments, where eventually we die. That's just the reality. Nothing is 100%. I'm a medical professional. I'm a nurse. And they teach just nothing is 100%. And I don't like that word, cure. <laughs> I do think there is a difference with long-term progression-free lifespan of the disease where you can live for a long term. I've met metastatic breast cancer people with 15, 20 years, and I'm just praying and hoping I get there. And I know statistically there are odds. Even if it's one, I still count it because it's always hope. I'm de novo. I'm triple positive. So I understand the statistics that my likelihood of long-term survival is greater than someone with maybe triple negative breast cancer.
0: Shantae, I'm so glad that you said what you said. I think it's so hard for us when we're metastatic, right? We have to keep this balance between realism and pragmatism and what we know the state of the science is now. And then also keep a space for hope. And hope can be multi-tiered. So there's hope for a giant breakthrough like Herceptin was, or a CDK for six inhibitors have been giant breakthroughs that have happened when I was first diagnosed metastatic. And that was only four and a half years ago, you know, like it's a tricky concept, which is why I think it's good that we're doing this series on it so we can explore it in multi-ways. For me as an advocate, I hold hope that a cure will come along for someone even if it doesn't come along for me, that it can come along for either in a different subtype or that they can prevent metastasis after initially getting early stage or that they can slow it down. So I think there's multi-tiers of hope and multi-tiers of cure. But always in my other hand, I hold quality of life. So I think when we talk about cure and we talk about possibilities of it, I would just ask researchers and funders, even as we're funding projects that look for cure, To consider funding projects that also help with quality of life, which could include targeted treatments or could include things that just help those of us who are metastatic now have a better quality of life for as long as we have.
2: When I was diagnosed with MBC 22 years after my stage one breast cancer, I was in a total state of shock. How could that possibly have happened? me after all the chemotherapy, surgery, radiation I had, and I really thought my life was over. I chose aggressive treatment and I've had uh, no evident disease on my PET scans for the past four years. So I've been taking my aromatase inhibitor. I take my CD4-6 kinase inhibitor. And I wonder, are there still more dormant cells in my spine? Dare I ask, is it possible that I have been cured? Will I ever know? And I realized I want to know because if I can be cured, then maybe others can be cured as well. And that's really what gives me hope.
6: I'm uh, in be- between Shante and Ellen where I do trust numbers. If if you can only live with metastatic disease for three to five years as the average person does, but you make it outside of that, that's just like extra. So both those numbers and living outside those numbers are very comforting to me. I'm in the boat though, where I also feel that I don't know if a cure is going to be possible in my lifetime. I don't have a science background, so I don't know the nitty gritty of it all. But what I do hope is that the cure will be out there in my children's lifetime. I'm a BRCA positive. That means that my kids might be susceptible to that type of cancer as well. I'm hoping that if they're faced with the same diagnosis, that there's going to be better options for them in the future. Science is evolving so quickly that if there can't be a cure just because of nature of cancer in general, I think it can eventually be listed as a chronic um, illness where people are left living long lives with the disease. So hopefully, there can just be more science around living a continued life with cancer, but not looking at a narrow tunnel of life. I don't feel like I'm optimistic, but I'm a skeptic as well. Holding on to the idea that there's going to be a cure in my lifetime feels like it might lead to just a lot of disappointment and it's not something worth holding on to. For some reason, it brings me more comfort knowing that it's not going to be cured so I can live the life I want to live now. Whereas if I was just holding out for a cure, it just feels like I would be stuck in my tracks and not be able to move forward.
0: And i'm I'm gonna jump in and say this idea of us being afraid to hope is something that I hope we do talk about more. How do we cope with hope?
6: <laughs> is it protective? Is it a risk factor for us? i I could tell you right now, it's a very protective mechanism. If I put my, all my eggs in one basket and they all get smashed on, then it seems like a harder loss than if I was to spread all my eggs out and keep them safe. so. It's just a, a risk that you're putting yourself out there. Not that I'm not hopeful. I'm hopeful that I'm going to live long with this disease. But am I hopeful that I'm going to get cured? I don't know. Probably not. But yeah, you're, yeah. I think you're right, Paula, that it's a fine line, that hope. Too much of it can be to your detriment and not enough of it can be as well. Yeah,
3: agreed. Uh, I've been thinking about this a lot. When I first saw this article, and even though I'm not de Novo, and it may not applied to me. I had done quite a bit of uh, research and I knew that a person with my diagnosis would probably have about five to six years. Because I'm her too positive, I was being on the hopeful side and I looked at the Cleopatra trial and I saw the results and I said, okay, Fine, five years is not tomorrow. I can do five years. And I adjusted my expectations accordingly. I have made certain decisions based on that life expectation. And then I get this article and I read it. Do I have more than five years? What do I do now? Do I recalculate my life expectations? Do I start saving again? Because I wasn't saving all that much. I figured I may as well spend what I have. (laughs) That is one of the reasons why I thought that that would be a good topic to discuss because many people are in the same boat as I am and as many of you are, right? We've had certain expectations of how long we will have. And now these expectations are changing. So... Do we
5: need to readjust our lifestyle? Yeah, that's really good point because when I reached a year, I was like, oh, snap, I reached a year. Oh, all right. And then like at year two, I was like, okay, maybe I could just make some more goals and everything. And now I'm like six years out, to me, it's getting a little scary because I'm like,
0: mm-hmm.
5: yeah. uh, mm-hmm. how much longer do I have? And although I haven't progressed yet, but we know that even if I do progress, it doesn't necessarily mean the treatment will work. And then I fear sometimes, okay, if I get on a treatment and it doesn't work, and then I just keep exhausting all my options, even though I do have a good amount, if I exhaust them really quickly, I, I fear that all the time. And I feel like if once you progress, it's almost getting rediagnosed and you gotta reevaluate your life and then you gotta reevaluate how much longer you may or may not live. And those things are scary and So to your point, Victoria, you're right. Like after a certain time, do I keep living or not living? But I always go with what Paula was saying. I have hope, but I keep my hope day by day. All right, I made it through the day. Bam, we good. And then the next day I might have a bad day. And I'm like, crap. Hopefully this don't last long. Usually it's over in like a 24 to 48 hour period. And then it's better. And then you get more hope. And it's truly day by day with us.
1: I agree with this balance between being realistic and hopeful, because when I did progress and went down that that rabbit hole, and it was so hard to get out of it. It took me probably a year like to realize, okay, you know what this treatment really is working, and it's hard to live life looking forward, so if you don't balance that hope, then that realism just brings you down, and you can't enjoy your life that way. But it's hard when you're living with the disease and having that progression and then trying to get yourself back up again. So I'm looking at my shoulder. It's been four and a half years. I've been on Fazodex and the CDK Ribocyclib, And you think, oh gosh, how much longer do I really have? I have as long as I'm going to have. And then we'll go on to the next treatment. And we don't know. We could have many, many years. We could have many months. We could have many days. Don't know. It's really hard being in this position for sure, but I think talking about it is the best way we can all help each other. And I think talking about that cure, even though maybe it isn't right around the corner, the steps to that cure is important to talk about because a lot of us don't have the ability to be on top of all the topics that are coming out and all the new exciting research that's coming out. And I think that's great that this podcast is able to present this to our listeners so that they can hear it and they can have a little bit of that hope because eventually it will be around the corner. And until we get there, you know what, maybe the next step isn't the cure, but like the steps to the cure are going to get us more years.
2: Sorry, I I keep thinking about... um... The numbers and about percentages and hearing these things. When I was diagnosed with NBC, I did not look up what the average lifespan was. I didn't check into that because I felt like I had flunked this numbers game all along the way. You know, I I shouldn't have gotten it at age 43, I shouldn't have had a recurrence. I kept saying 1% is 100% when. You have it. So I look at that for now. The numbers have flipped, and I'm not supposed to live that long, but maybe the numbers will be in my favor this time. And that's very comforting. And that helps me to live my best life with this.
5: Something
0: that's always in the back of my mind when we've been having these meetings and discussions all of us that are on this call have been fairly lucky. And We all know so many people and have loved so many people who don't get even the time that we've had. And I always want to keep my host of loved ones who have passed from NBC. I need to carry them with me into every discussion because they don't get to have a voice at this table and we need to be their voice. And just to remember that even when we're talking about chronic, there are people who go through line after line so quickly. They don't get to worry about side effects. And so always keeping them in this discussion when we're talking to researchers and in this panel, like there are layers to every little bit of this. And to always be advocating for people who are not in our situation, even as we advocate for our own situation.
2: I really appreciate that, Paula. One of my dear friends who was my guide... In this NBC world, when I first was diagnosed, she had been living with, with it for seven years by then. And she told me that my job and her job was to stay one step ahead of the doctor. So I just keep researching, keep finding a treatment to know what to suggest and what else could be done when the inevitable failure comes. And... I keep her very close to me. I I basically relied on her to tell me what to do. I've been very grateful to find all of you and to uh, rejuvenate, and I feel very committed to keeping knowledge and learning and being available to other people who are experiencing this to try to help them along the way. And every time I hear of a new drug, I think, I wish she were here to try it. She would know what to do. And I feel lucky. And that's part of wanting to share the luck that we have and that if we can help other people, great. I do believe that we're helping other people along the way. We all have our angels with us.
3: We started this experience with planning a single episode. Just about a cure, but then it morphed into a much bigger initiative, if we can pull it off. It will have eight standalone interviews with different oncologists where we'll talk about many things, but we will start by asking them, so do you think cure is possible? And then we take it from there. This is going to be quite a commitment on our listeners' part. Before we go, why don't we tell our listeners why we think that this commitment is worth it and what we expect them to get at the end of it when we reach the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in December.
1: After doing my first interview, I was a little nervous. And now I'm just excited because... I learned so much. It was just a great experience. And I hope that my listeners will learn from every podcast. And I know it's a long road, but I think that we can learn from all these oncologists. And if we can learn one thing from each one, we'll be better. I just think there is hope in listening to a possibility of the future. All the new research coming out, I think it's important and I'm hoping the listeners gain some knowledge and get a little bit of hope from that. Well put.
2: I think we've assembled some of the best minds and the best researchers in the field. And for them to share their insights, not only with us, but with the NBC community is incredibly valuable. And I think each person listening is going to learn something different. We're each going to pick out something that resonates with us to a greater degree than others. And I think that it's just an amazing opportunity for people to hear those great minds, which are being very generous with their time.
5: Yeah, I think that no matter what level you're at, whether you're newly diagnosed, you've been here for a while, you progressed, you haven't progressed, you've known someone who has passed from it, whether you're almost toward the end or whatever level, a caregiver, or anyone that's listening to this, I think the the key is that we are progressing and it may seem slow, but there is some further progression each time, each year. And we get more information and the more we're involved in clinical trials, the better the information can be, the more we vocalize what's happening to us, to the advisory boards, the better research and data that could be collected, the better the advances and technologies that come out. I think even for the next generation behind us or the generation behind us, just think of the people who were before us, what they endured and all that they didn't have and that we do now, just even as simple as a nausea drug. So, if we think of it in a historical framework, it may seem slow, but I think we're going to get there one day for sure.
3: I do think the importance of this series is that. As uh, Kate said, not everyone is up on uh, what's happening in research, and not everyone is learning about the new technologies, new modalities. When we designed such a big undertaking, there are two goals we had. One, we wanted to make sure that our listeners would get a more comprehensive picture of what uh, different research going on in different places, that it's not all about HER2 positive. Talking to researchers is going to give us more ammunition to hope, but not just baselessly hope, but to hope with more detailed understanding of uh, of this disease and new molecular subtypes. And also what I wanted to get out of this is uh, for people to know that research is happening everywhere. It's not just happening on the coast. It's not just Boston, New York, and LA. It's in the middle of the country. We will be talking to people out of Northwestern and Chicago. We will be talking to people in Kansas City. And uh, so, no matter where our listeners live, there is a lot of research happening, probably near where they are. And I think it's important for uh, for people to know that. I, I do think, especially in metastatic breast cancer, that knowledge
0: is power. I mean, that's such a slogan, but when it comes to something where the research is constantly evolving, if you're up for it, I think keeping up with the research can actually help you. <laughs> at the same time, I also want to tell our listeners that NBC is a marathon. And if at any point it's overwhelming and you need to stop listening, please don't think of that as a failure. Be kind to yourself. Managing our mental and emotional health and living with this is one thing that is in our control. We, we can't necessarily control what our micromets are going to do. We can control... Um, how we handle our mental and emotional health. So always keep what you need at the forefront. If you need to bug out and stop listening for a while, do that with no guilt. And you can always dip back in. The series is going to live online. So you can dip back in as you need to. If you have it in you to listen, it just adds to what you can bring to your appointments with your oncologist. So be kind to yourselves, please.
2: (laughs) As I
6: was thinking, it was just what Paula is saying, that understanding my disease better has helped me cope. With my disease better and having it. You're right, saying knowledge is power seems so obvious, but it's also so much information to get. And it's about getting it at the right time because you can't absorb all this information the day you're diagnosed or the moment you're in treatment or at your five minute doctor appointments. Mm-hmm. But I felt being part of the podcast and being part of this group has benefited me in. Other ways, maybe even better than support groups, in the sense that I'm I'm learning what's happening in my body as it's happening, and in in an odd way, it's very comforting knowing that that is going to happen. It leaves me less searching for those types of answers. When there's nothing I'm doing that keeps me from getting cancer, the only thing I can do is take my medicine. But I know what the medicine is doing and I know why my cancer is acting the way it does. It's been very nice to be part of so many smart people explaining to me constantly, not in in a bad way, what my cancer is and why it's doing what it does. So it's really helpful
3: for my own um, emotional benefit, I think. This has been such a great discussion. Join us next Monday, October 18th, when... Lisa Laudico and Dr. Ellen Lansberger sit down for an in-depth conversation with Dr. Larry Norton, arguably the most influential living breast cancer doctor in America. Later in the series, Dr. Seda Parsons and Nancy Lean from Dana-Farber, who are optimistic enough that a cure might be possible, that they've been involved in trying to put together a national study to deal with this question. In June 2018, Researchers at the NIH reported that a metastatic breast cancer patient appeared to have been cured of her disease. Judy Perkins, who is the aforementioned patient, and I will check in with Dr. Stephanie Goff, the leading investigator on this ongoing trial about new research in immunotherapy. We will travel to L.A. to speak with Dr. Sarah Hurwitz, Director of Breast Cancer Clinical Trials program at the UCLA David Gaffin School of Medicine. Brilliant young researcher from Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine will talk to us about her research in novel therapies aimed to prolong the life of patients living with brain meds and leptomeningeal disease. We will find Dr. Hope Brugo in San Francisco and will discuss cutting-edge triple NBC treatment options and promising results of their ESSEN trial. Through these conversations, we aim to deepen our understanding of our own disease, the successes and the limitations of the research, and possibly give you hope and ammunition to be an active participant in your own care. So, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride.
4: We remember episode is dedicated to the 116 people who die each day in the United States from this disease. Please send in the names and stories of the people you want remembered through our website's connect page at rmbclife.org or you can just send us a soundbite via email to rmbclife at sharecancersupport.org. This episode was created, produced, and edited by senior producer and co-host Victoria Goldberg. She's been joined in producing the Road to a Cure series by Dr. Paula Jane, Dr. Ellen Landsberger, Natalia Green, Shante Drakeford, and Kate Fitzer. We are helped by Connor Kinsley with original music and expert sound design by Victoria Goldberg and Samantha Silverstein. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at SHARE Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RMBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us, and look for a new episode every Monday. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website. Sign up for our news blast at RNBCLife.org. We'd love to hear from you.